Section thirty one of the Treasure Chest of My Book House. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lynn Thompson. Maggie Tulliver Goes to Live with the Gypsies. Arranged from The Mill on the Floss. By George Eliot. A wide plain where the broadening floss hurries on between its green banks to the sea, and the loving tide rushing to meet it, checks its passage with an impetuous embrace. On this mighty tide the black ships are borne along to the town of St. Ogg's, which shows its aged fluted red roofs and the broad gables of its wharves between the low wooded hill and the river bank. Far away on each hand stretch the rich pastures and the patches of dark earth made ready for the seed Just by the red-roofed town the tributary ripple flows its lively current into the floss and Here is Dolcott mill with its trimly kept comfortable dwelling-house as old as the elms and chestnuts that shelter it from the northern blast the rush of the water and the booming of the mill bring a dreamy deafness which seems to heighten the peacefulness of the scene and now there is the thunder of the huge covered wagon coming home with sacks of grain that little girl who has stood so long on just the same spot at the edge of the stream is watching the unresting wheel sending out its diamond jets of water and that queer white cur with the brown ear seems to be leaping and barking at the wheel Perhaps he is jealous because his playfellow is so rapt in its movement It is time the little playfellow went in and there is a very bright fire to tempt her The red light shines out from the left-hand parlor where mr. And mrs. Tulliver are talking it seems a bit of a pity said mr. Tulliver as the lad should take after the mother's side instead of the little wench the little one's twice as cute as Tom Yes, said mrs. Tulliver, but her cuteness all runs to naughtiness how to keep her in a clean pinafore two hours together passes my cunning And now you put me in mind she continued rising and going to the window I don't know where she is now, and it's pretty nigh tea time Ah, I thought so wandering up and down by the water like a wild thing she'll tumble in some day Mrs. Tulliver rapped the window sharply beckoned and shook her head a process which she repeated more than once before she returned to her chair You talk acuteness mr. Tulliver she observed as she sat down But I'm sure the child's half an idiot in some things For if I send her upstairs to fetch anything she forgets what she's gone for and perhaps I'll sit down on the floor in the sunshine and plait her hair and sing to herself like a bedlam creature all the while I'm waiting for her downstairs that never run in my family, thank God. No more nor a brown skin as make her look like a mulatter. Pooh, nonsense, said Mr. Tulliver. She's a straight black-eyed wench, as anybody need wish to see. I don't know in what she's behind other folks' children, but she can read almost as well as the parson. But her hair won't curl all I can do with it, and she's so franzy about having it put in paper, and I've such work as never was to make her stand and have it pinched with irons. Cut it off cut it off short said the father rashly. How can you talk so mr. Tulliver? She's too big a girl gone nine and tall for her age to have her hair cut short and There's her cousin Lucy's got a row of curls round her head and not a hair out of place It seems hard as my sister Dean should have that pretty child 
I'm sure Lucy takes more after me nor my own child does. Maggie, Maggie, continued the mother in a tone of half-coaxing fretfulness as Maggie entered the room. Where's the use of my telling you to keep away from the water? You'll tumble in and be drowned some days, and then you'll be sorry you didn't do as your mother told you. Maggie's hair, as she threw off her bonnet, painfully confirmed her mother's accusation. Mrs. Tulliver, desiring her daughter to have a curled crop, like other folks' children, had had it cut too short in front to be pushed behind the ears, and as it was usually straight an hour after it had been taken out of paper, Maggie was incessantly tossing her head to keep the dark, heavy locks out of her gleaming black eyes, an action which gave her very much the air of a small Shetland pony. "'Oh, dear, oh, dear, Maggie, what are you thinking of to throw your bonnet down there?' Take it upstairs, there's a good girl, and let your hair be brushed, and put your other pinafore on, and change your shoes, do, for shame, and come and go on with your patchwork like a little lady. Oh, mother, said Maggie, in a vehemently cross tone, I don't want to do my patchwork. What? Not your pretty patchwork to make a counterpane for your Aunt Glegg? It's foolish work, said Maggie, with a toss of her mane, tearing things to pieces to sew em together again, and I don't want to do anything for my Aunt Glegg. I don't like her. And Maggie went out, dragging her bonnet by the string, while Mr. Tulliver laughed audibly. I wonder at you, as you'll laugh at her, Mr. Tulliver, said the mother, with feeble fretfulness in her tone. You encourage her in naughtiness, and her aunts will have it, as me it spoils her. Few wives were more submissive than Mrs. Tulliver, on all points unconnected with her family relations, but she had been a Miss Dodson, and the Dodsons were a very respectable family indeed, as much looked up to as any in their own parish or the next to it. The Miss Dodsons had always been taught to hold up their heads very high. There were particular ways of doing everything in that family, particular ways of bleaching the linen, of making the cowslip wine, curing the hams, and keeping the bottled gooseberries, so that no daughter of that house could be indifferent to the privilege of having been born a Dodson, rather than a Gibson or a Watson. And it is remarkable that while each individual Dodson was forever finding fault with every other individual Dodson, each was satisfied not only with him or herself, but with the Dodsons as a whole. Mrs. Tulliver was a thorough Dodson. True, she had groaned a little in her youth, under the yoke of her elder sisters, and still shed occasional tears at the disagreeable truths they never shrank from telling her. But she had no mind to let her husband or children fail in full respect to Aunt Glegg, or any other member of the Dodson family. Now Tom was thought to be somewhat like the Dodsons. He had light brown hair, cheeks of cream and roses, full lips, and a nose and eyebrows expressing nothing in particular, a face as different as possible from poor Maggie's, which nature seemed to have moulded and coloured with the most decided intention. Mrs. Tulliver was thankful to have one child who took after her own family, at least in his features and complexion, but Tom was as far from appreciating his kin on his mother's side as Maggie herself, generally running away for a day with a large supply of the most portable food when he received timely warning that his aunts and uncles were coming, a moral symptom from which Aunt Glegg argued the gloomiest views for his future. "'My children are so awkward with their aunts and uncles,' Mrs. Tulliver would sigh. "'Maggie's ten times naughtier when they come than she is other days, and Tom doesn't like them. "'And there's Lucy Dean, such a good child. "'You may set her on a stool, and there she'll sit for an hour together, and never offer to get off.' 
It was Easter week, and Mrs. Tulliver found it advisable to invite Sister Glegg, Sister Pullet, and Sister Dee to dinner to consult with them on important matters. On Wednesday, the day before the aunts and uncles were coming, there were such various and suggestive scents as of plum cake in the oven and jellies in the hot state, mingled with the aroma of gravy, that it was impossible to feel altogether gloomy. Tom and Maggie made several inroads into the kitchen, and like other marauders were induced to keep aloof for a time only by being allowed to carry away a sufficient load of booty. Tom, said Maggie, as they sat on the boughs of the elder tree, eating their jam puffs, shall you run away tomorrow? No, said Tom slowly, when he had finished his puff, and was eyeing the third, which was to be divided between them. No, I shan't. Why, Tom, because Lucy's coming? No, said Tom, opening his pocket-knife and holding it over the puff with his head on one side, in an uncertain manner. It was a difficult problem to divide that very irregular polygon into two equal parts. "'What do I care about Lucy? She's only a girl. She can't play at bandy.' "'Is it the tipsy cake, then?' said Maggie, while she leaned forward toward Tom, with her eye fixed on the hovering knife. "'No, you silly. That'll be good the day after. It's the puddin'. I know what the puddin' to be. Apricot roll-up. Oh, my buttons!' With this interjection the knife descended on the puff, and it was in two but the result was not satisfactory to Tom, for he still eyed the halves doubtfully. One was decidedly better than the other. "'Shut your eyes, Maggie. What for? You never mind what for. Shut em when I tell you.' Maggie obeyed. "'Now, which will you have, Maggie, right or left?' "'I'll have that one with the jam run out,' said Maggie, keeping her eyes shut to please Tom. "'Why, you don't like that, you silly. You may have it if it comes to you fair, but I shan't give it to you without.' "'Right or left, choose now.' "'Ha!' said Tom, in a tone of exasperation, as Maggie peeped. "'You keep your eyes shut, else you shan't have any.' Maggie would gladly have given up the best piece to Tom, but her power of sacrifice did not extend so far as to go without any. So she shut her eyes quite close, till Tom told her to say which, and then she said, "'Left hand.' "'You've got it,' said Tom, in rather a bitter tone. "'What, the bit with the jam run out?' "'No, here, take it,' said Tom, firmly handing the best piece to Maggie. "'Oh, please, Tom, have it. I don't mind. I like the other. Please take this.' "'No, I shan't,' said Tom crossly, beginning on his own piece. Maggie, thinking it was no use to contend further, began too, and ate up her half-puff with considerable relish, as well as rapidity. But Tom had finished first, and had to look on while Maggie ate, while Maggie ate her last morsel or two, "'feeling in himself a capacity for more. "'Oh, you greedy thing,' said Tom, when she had finished the last morsel. "'He was conscious of having acted very fairly, "'and thought she ought to have considered this, and made up to him for it. "'He would have refused a bit of hers beforehand, "'but one has naturally a different point of view before and after one's own share of puff is swallowed. "'Maggie turned quite pale. "'She loved Tom with all the strength of her warm, impetuous nature,' and could not bear to have him think ill of her. "'Oh, Tom,' she cried, "'why didn't you ask me?' "'I wasn't going to ask you, you greedy. "'You might have thought of it without, "'when I gave you the best bit. "'But I wanted you to have it. "'You know I did,' said Maggie. "'Yes, but I wasn't going to do what wasn't fair. "'If I go halves, I'll go and fair. "'Only I wouldn't be a greedy.' "'With this cutting remark, "'Tom jumped down from his bow and walked off, "'throwing a stone with a hoik, 
as a friendly attention to Yap the dog, who had also been looking on while the eatables vanished with an agitation of the ears and feelings which could hardly have been without bitterness. Yet the excellent dog accepted Tom's attention with as much alacrity as if he had been treated quite generously. But Maggie sat still on her bow and gave herself up to the keen sense of unmerited reproach. She would have given the world not to have eaten all her puff, and to have saved some of it for Tom. She would have gone without it many times over, sooner than Tom should call her greedy and be cross with her. And he had said he wouldn't have it, and she ate it without thinking. How could she help it? The tears flowed so plentifully that Maggie saw nothing around her for the next ten minutes. But by that time resentment began to give way to the desire for reconciliation, and she jumped from her bow to look for Tom. The next day the Dodsons arrived, one and all, at Dolcott Mill. Aunt and Uncle Glegg came first, Aunt Glegg in her severe bonnet and slate-coloured gown with a mouldy odour about it suggestive of a damp clothes chest. Then came Aunt and Uncle Pullet in a one-horse chaise. Mr. Pullet was a small man with a high nose, small twinkling eyes and thin lips, who bore about the same relation to his tall good-looking wife, with her balloon sleeves, abundant mantle and large befeathered and beribboned bonnet, as a small fishing smack bears to a brig with all its sails spread. Lastly appeared Mr. and Mrs. Dean with little Lucy, and Mrs. Tulliver had to look on with a silent pang while Lucy's blonde curls were adjusted. Maggie always looked twice as dark as usual when she was by the side of Lucy. She did today when she and Tom came in from the garden with their father and their uncle Glegg. Maggie had thrown her bonnet off very carelessly, and coming in with her hair rough as well as out of curl, rushed at once to Lucy, who was standing by her mother's knee. Certainly the contrast between the cousins was conspicuous. It was like the contrast between a rough, dark, overgrown puppy and a white kitten. Lucy put up the neatest little rosebud mouth to be kissed. Everything about her was neat, her little round neck with the row of coral beads, her little straight nose, not at all snubby, her little clear eyebrows rather darker than her curls to match her hazel eyes, which looked up with shy pleasure at Maggie, taller by the head, though scarcely more than a year older. Maggie always looked at Lucy with delight. She was fond of fancying a world where the people never grew any larger than children of their own age, and she made the queen of it just like Lucy, with a little crown on her head and a little sceptre in her hand. Only the queen was Maggie herself in Lucy's form. "'Oh, Lucy,' she burst out after kissing her, "'you'll stay with Tom and me, won't you? "'Oh, kiss her, Tom.' Tom, too, had come up to Lucy, but he was not going to kiss her, no. He came up to her with Maggie because it seemed easier on the whole than saying how do you do to all those aunts and uncles. He stood looking at nothing in particular with the blushing, awkward air and semi-smile which are common to shy boys when in company. Hey, day said Aunt Glegg, with loud emphasis. "'Do little boys and girls come into the room without taking notice of their uncles and aunts?' "'That wasn't the way when I was a little girl.' "'Go and speak to your aunts and uncles, my dears,' said Mrs. Tulliver, looking anxious. She wanted to whisper a command to Maggie to go and have her hair brushed. "'Well, and how do you do? And I hope you're good children, are you?' said Aunt Glegg, in the same loud, emphatic way as she shook their hands, hurting them with her large rings, and kissing their cheeks much against their desire. "'Look up, Tom, look up. Boys as go to boarding school should hold their heads up. Look at me now.' Tom declined the pleasure, apparently, for he tried to draw his hand away. 
Put your hair behind your ears, Maggie, and keep your frock on your shoulder. Aunt Glegg always spoke to them in this loud, emphatic way, as if she considered them deaf, or perhaps rather idiotic. It was a means, she thought, of making them feel that they were accountable creatures, and might be a salutary check on naughty tendencies. Bessie's children were so spoiled, they'd need to have somebody to make them feel their duty. "'Well, my dear,' said Aunt Pullet, in a compassionate voice, "'you grow wonderful fast. I think the girl has too much hair. I'd have it thinned and cut shorter if I was you. It isn't good for her health. It's that as makes her skin so brown, I shouldn't wonder.' "'Don't you think so, Sister Dean?' "'I can't say, I'm sure, Sister,' said Mrs. Dean, shutting her lips close again, and looking at Maggie with a critical eye. "'No, no,' said Mr. Tulliver. "'The child's healthy enough. There's nothing ails her. But it'd be as well if Bessie'd have her hair cut so as it'd lie smooth.' A dreadful resolve was gathering in Maggie's breast, but it was arrested by the desire to know from her Aunt Dean whether she would leave Lucy behind. Aunt Dean would hardly ever let Lucy come to see them, after various reasons for refusal, Mrs. Dean appealed to Lucy herself. "'You wouldn't like to stay without Mother, should you, Lucy?' "'Yes, please, Mother,' said Lucy timidly, blushing very pink all over her little neck. "'Well done, Lucy. Let her stay, Mrs. Dean. Let her stay,' said Mr. Dean. "'Maggie,' said Mrs. Tulliver, beckoning Maggie to her, and whispering in her ear as soon as this point of Lucy's staying was settled, "'go and get your hair brushed. Do, for shame.' I told you not to come in without going to Martha first. You know I did. Tom, come out with me, whispered Maggie, pulling his sleeve as she pushed him, and Tom followed willingly enough. Come upstairs with me, Tom, she whispered when they were outside the door. There's something I want to do before dinner. There's no time to play at anything before dinner, said Tom. Oh, yes, there is time for this. Come, Tom. Tom followed Maggie upstairs and saw her go at once to a drawer from which she took out a large pair of scissors. "'What are they for, Maggie?' said Tom, feeling his curiosity awakened. Maggie answered by seizing her front locks and cutting them straight across the middle of her forehead. "'Oh, my buttons, Maggie, you'll catch it!' exclaimed Tom. "'You'd better not cut any more off.' Snip went the great scissors again while Tom was speaking, and he couldn't stop help feeling that it was rather good fun. Maggie would look so queer.' "'Here, Tom, cut it behind for me,' said Maggie, excited by her own daring, and anxious to finish the deed. "'You'll catch it now, you know,' said Tom, nodding his head in an admonitory manner, and hesitating a little as he took the scissors. "'Never mind, make haste,' said Maggie, giving a little stamp with her foot. Her cheeks were quite flushed. The black locks were so thick, nothing could be more tempting to a lad who had already tasted the forbidden pleasure of cutting a pony's mane. One delicious grinding snip, and then another, and another, and the hinder locks fell heavily on the floor, and Maggie stood cropped in a jagged, uneven manner, but with a sense of clearness and freedom as if she had emerged from a wood into the open plain. "'Oh, Maggie,' said Tom, jumping around her and slapping his knees with laughter, "'oh, my buttons, what a queer thing you look. Look at yourself in the glass. You look like the idiot we throw our nutshells to at school.' Maggie felt an unexpected pang. She had thought beforehand chiefly of her own deliverance from her teasing hair and teasing remarks about it, and something also of the triumph she would have over her mother and her aunts by this very decided course of action. But now, when Tom began to laugh at her and say she was like the idiot, the affair had quite a new aspect. 
She looked at the glass, and still Tom laughed and clapped his hands, and Maggie's flushed cheeks began to pale, and her lips to tremble a little. "'Oh, Maggie, you'll have to go down to dinner directly,' said Tom. "'Oh, my!' "'Don't laugh at me, Tom,' said Maggie, with an outburst of angry tears, stamping and giving him a push. "'Now then, Spitfire,' said Tom, "'what did you cut it off for, then? I shall go down. I can smell the dinner going in.' He hurried downstairs and left poor Maggie to bitterness. She could see clearly enough now the thing was done, that it was very foolish, and that she should have to hear and think more about her hair than ever, for Maggie rushed to her deeds with passionate impulse, and then saw the consequences afterward. Tom never did the same sort of foolish things as Maggie, having a wonderful instinctive discernment beforehand of what would turn to his advantage or disadvantage. And so it happened that, though he was much more willful and inflexible than Maggie, his mother hardly ever called him naughty. But if Tom ever did make a mistake of that sort, he stood by it. If he broke the lash of his father's jig-whip by lashing the gate, he couldn't help it. The whip shouldn't have got caught in the hinge. He was convinced not that the whipping of gate by all boys was a justifiable act, but that he, Tom Tulliver, was justifiable in whipping that particular gate, whereas Maggie was always being sorry and wishing she had done something different. As she stood crying before the glass, Maggie felt it impossible that she should go down to dinner and endure the severe eyes and severe words of her aunts, and if she had only let her hair alone, she could have sat with Tom and Lucy and had the apricot pudding and the custard. What could she do but sob? Maggie, said Tom, peeping into the room ten minutes after, why don't you come and have your dinner? There's lots of goodies, and mother says you're to come. What are you crying for, you little spoony? Oh, it was dreadful. Tom was so hard and unconcerned. If he had been crying on the floor, Maggie would have cried too. And there was the dinner, so nice, and she was so hungry. It was very bitter, but Tom was not altogether hard. He was not inclined to cry, and did not feel that Maggie's grief spoiled his prospect of the sweets. "'but he went and put his head near her, "'and said in a low, comforting tone, "'Won't you come, then, Maggie? "'Shall I bring you a bit of pudding when I've had mine, "'and a custard and things?' "'Yes,' said Maggie, "'beginning to feel life a little more tolerable. "'Very well,' said Tom, going away. "'But he turned again at the door and said, "'But you'd better come, you know. "'There's the dessert, nuts, you know, and cowslip wine.' "'Maggie's tears had ceased, "'and she looked reflective as Tom left her, her good nature had taken off the keenest edge of her suffering, and nuts with cowslip wine began to assert their legitimate influence. Slowly she rose from her scattered locks, and slowly she made her way downstairs. Then she stood with one shoulder against the frame of the dining parlour door, peeping in when it was ajar. She saw Tom and Lucy with an empty chair between them, and there were the custards on a side table. It was too much. She slipped in and went toward the empty chair, but she had no sooner sat down than she repented and wished herself back again. Mrs. Tulliver gave a little scream as she saw her and dropped the large gravy spoon into the dish with the most serious results to the tablecloth. Mrs. Tulliver's scream made all eyes turn towards the same point as her own, and Maggie's cheeks and ears began to burn, while Uncle Glegg, a kind-looking white-haired old gentleman, said, "'Hey, Day, what little girl's this? "'Why, I don't know her. "'Is it some little girl you've picked up in the road?' "'Why, she's gone and cut her hair herself. 
laughed Mr. Tulliver in an undertone to Mr. Dean. Why, little miss, you've made yourself look very funny, and perhaps he never in his life made a remark which was felt to be more cutting. Fie for shame, said Aunt Glegg in her loudest, severest tone of reproof. Little girls as cut their own hair should be whipped and fed on bread and water, not come and sit down with their aunts and uncles. Aye, aye, said Uncle Glegg, meaning to give a playful turn to this denunciation. She must be sent to jail, I think, and they'll cut the rest of her hair off there and make it all even. She's more like a gypsy nor ever, said Aunt Pullet, in a pitying tone. She's a very naughty child, as'll break her mother's heart, said Mrs. Tulliver, with the tears in her eyes. Maggie seemed to be listening to a chorus of reproach and derision. Her first flush came from anger, which gave her a momentary power of defiance. Oh, my, Maggie, I told you you'd catch it, whispered Tom. He meant to be friendly, but Maggie felt convinced that Tom was rejoicing in her shame. Her feeble power of defiance left her in an instant. Her heart swelled, and getting up from her chair, she ran to her father, hid her face on his shoulder, and burst out into sobbing. "'Come, come, my wench,' said her father soothingly, putting his arm round her. "'Never mind. You was in the right to cut it off if it played you. Give over crying. Father'll take your part.' Delicious words of tenderness. Maggie never forgot any of those moments when her father took her part. "'How your husband does spoil that child, Bessie,' said Mrs. Glegg in a loud aside to Mrs. Tulliver. "'It'll be the ruin of her if you don't take care. "'My father never brought his children up so, "'else we should have been different family to what we are.' Mrs. Tulliver's sorrow seemed at this moment to have reached the point where she could feel no more. She took no notice of her sister's remark, but threw back her cap-strings and carved the pudding in mute resignation. With the dessert there came entire deliverance for Maggie, for the children were told they might have their nuts and wine in the summer-house, since the day was so mild, and they scampered out among the budding bushes of the garden, with the alacrity of small animals getting from under a burning glass. That night all the uncles and aunts departed, leaving Lucy Dean behind, but the next day Mrs. Tulliver was to take the children to Sister Pullet's at Garum Furs for tea. The day began ill with Maggie. The pleasure of having Lucy to look at, and the prospect of the afternoon visit to Garum Furs, where she would hear Uncle Pullet's musical box, had been marred as early as eleven o'clock by the advent of the hairdresser from St. Ogg's, who had spoken in the severest terms of the condition in which he had found her hair, holding up one jagged lock after another, and saying, See here, tut, 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 in a tone of mingled disgust and pity which to Maggie's imagination was equal to the strongest expression of public opinion. Already at twelve o'clock, Mrs. Tulliver had on her visiting costume, with a protective covering of brown holland. Maggie was frowning and twisting her shoulders, that she might, if possible, shrink away from the prickliest of tuckers, while her mother was remonstrating, "'Don't, Maggie, my dear, don't make yourself so ugly,' and Tom's cheeks, were looking particularly brilliant as a relief to his best blue suit which he wore with becoming calmness as for lucy she was just as pretty and neat as she had been yesterday no accidents ever happened to her clothes and she was never uncomfortable in them so that she looked with wondering pity at maggie pouting and writhing under the exasperating tucker maggie would certainly have torn it off if she had not been checked by the memory of her recent humiliation about her hair as it was, she confined herself to fretting and twisting, and behaving peevishly about the card-houses, which they were allowed to build till dinner, 
as a suitable amusement for boys and girls in their best clothes. Tom could build perfect pyramids of houses, but Maggie's would never bear the laying on of the roof. It was always so with the things that Maggie made, and Tom had concluded that no girls could ever make anything. But it happened that Lucy proved wonderfully clever at building. She handled the cards so lightly and moved so gently that Tom condescended to admire her houses as well as his own, the more readily because she had asked him to teach her. Maggie, too, would have admired Lucy's houses, and would have given up her own unsuccessful building to contemplate them without ill-temper if her tucker had not made her peevish and if tom had not inconsiderately laughed when her houses fell and told her she was a stupid don't laugh at me tom she burst out angrily i'm not a stupid i know a great many things you don't oh i dare say miss spitfire i'd never be such a cross thing as you making faces like that lucy doesn't do so i like lucy better than you i wish lucy was my sister then it is very wicked and cruel of you to wish so said maggie starting up hurriedly from her place on the floor and upsetting tom's wonderful pagoda she really did not mean to do it but the evidence was against her and tom turned quite white with anger but said nothing he would have struck her only he knew it was cowardly to strike a girl and tom tulliver was quite determined he would never do anything cowardly maggie stood in dismay and terror while tom got up from the floor and walked away pale from the scattered ruins of his pagoda and Lucy looked on mutely like a kitten pausing from its lapping. "'Oh, Tom,' said Maggie at last, going halfway towards him, "'I didn't mean to knock it down. Indeed, indeed I didn't.' Tom took no notice of her, but took instead two or three hard peas out of his pocket and shot them with his thumbnail against the window, vaguely at first, but presently with the distinct aim of hitting an aged fly, which was buzzing about in the sunshine. Thus the morning had been made heavy to Maggie, and Tom's persistent coldness to her, all through their walk to Garum Furs, spoiled the fresh air and sunshine for her. Tom, you perceive, was rather a severe personage. He was particularly clear and positive on one point, namely, that he would punish everybody who deserved it, and he was troubled with no doubts as to the exact amount of their deserts. Why, he wouldn't have minded being punished himself if he deserved it, but then he never did deserve it. He called Lucy to look at the half-built bird's nest without caring to show it to Maggie, and peeled a willow switch for Lucy and himself without offering one to Maggie. Lucy had said, Maggie, shouldn't you like one too? But Tom was deaf. Still, the sight of the peacock spreading his tail on the stackyard wall, just as they reached Garum Furs, was enough to divert the mind for a time from grievances, and this was only the beginning of beautiful sights at Garum Furs. All the farmyard life was wonderful there. Bantams speckled and top-knotted, Friesland hens with their feathers all turned the wrong way, guinea-fowls that flew and screamed and dropped their pretty spotted feathers, powder pigeons and a tame magpie, nay, a goat and a wonderful brindled dog, half mastiff, half bulldog, as large as a lion. Then there were white railings and white gates all about, and glittering weathercocks of various design, and garden walks paved with pebbles in beautiful patterns. Nothing was quite common at Garum Furs. Uncle Pullet had seen the expected party approaching from the window, and made haste to unbar and unchain the front door, kept always in this fortified condition from fear of tramps who might be supposed to know of the glass case of stuffed birds in the hall, and to contemplate rushing in and carrying it away on their heads. 
Aunt Pullet, too, appeared in the doorway, and, as soon as her sister was within hearing, said, "'Stop the children. For God's sake, Bessie, don't let them come up the doorstep. Sally's bringing the old mat and duster to rub their shoes.' When the ceremony of shoe-wiping was over, Aunt Pullet conducted Mrs. Tulliver and the girls in solemn procession upstairs along the bright and slippery corridor into the darkened best room where the outer light, entering feebly, showed what looked like ghosts of furniture in white shrouds. Meanwhile, Tom was seated in irksome constraint on the edge of a sofa below, directly opposite his Uncle Pullet. "'Well, young sir, what do you learn at school?' was a standing question with Uncle Pullet, whereupon Tom always looked sheepish, rubbed his hand across his face, and answered, "'I don't know.' The appearance of the little girls suggested to Uncle Pullet that he offer them certain small sweet cakes, of which he kept a stock under lock and key for his own private eating on wet days. But the children had no sooner got the tempting delicacy between their fingers than Aunt Pullet desired them to abstain from eating it till the tea-tray and the plates come, since with these crisp cakes they would make the floor all over crumbs. Lucy didn't mind that much, for the cake was so pretty she thought it rather a pity to eat it. But Tom, watching his opportunity while the elders were talking, hastily stowed his in his mouth at two bites, and chewed it furtively. As for Maggie, becoming fascinated as usual by a coloured print on the wall, she presently let fall her cake, and in an unlucky movement crushed it beneath her foot, a source of so much agitation to Aunt Pullet, and disgrace to Maggie, that she began to despair of hearing the musical snuff-box to-day, till it occurred to her that Lucy was in high favour enough to venture on asking for a tune. So she whispered to Lucy, and Lucy, who always did what she was desired to do, went up quietly to her uncle's knee, and blushing all over her neck while she fingered her necklace, said, "'Will you please play us a tune, uncle?' When the fairy tune began, Maggie quite forgot that she had a load on her mind, that Tom was angry with her, and by the time that hushy pretty warbling choir had been played, her face wore that bright look of happiness, while she sat immovable with her hands clasped, which sometimes comforted her mother, with the sense that Maggie could look pretty now and then, in spite of her brown skin. But when the magic music ceased, she jumped up and, running towards Tom, put her arm around his neck and said, "'Oh, Tom, isn't it pretty?' Now this caress was to Tom quite uncalled for. Moreover, he had his glass of cowslip wine in his hand, and Maggie jerked him, so that she made him spill half of it. "'Look there now!' he cried angrily. "'Why don't you sit still?' her mother said peevishly. "'Little girls mustn't come to see me if they act like that,' said Aunt Pullet. "'Why, you're too rough, little miss,' said Uncle Pullet. Poor Maggie sat down again with the music all chased out of her soul, and the seven small demons all in again. Mrs. Tulliver, foreseeing nothing but misbehaviour while the children remained indoors, took an early opportunity of suggesting that, now they were rested after their walk, they might go and play out of doors.' and Mrs. Pullet gave permission, only bidding them not to go off the paved walks in the garden, and if they wanted to see the poultry fed, to view them from a distance on the horse-block, a restriction which had been imposed upon the children ever since Tom had been found guilty of running after the peacock, with a vague idea that fright would make one of its feathers drop off. All the disagreeable recollections of the morning were thick upon Maggie when Tom, whose displeasure towards her had been considerably refreshed by her foolish trick of causing him to upset his cowslip wine, said, "'Here, Lucy, you come along with me,' and walked off to the area where the toads were, as if there were no Maggie in existence. 
Seeing this, Maggie lingered at a distance, looking like a small Medusa with her snakes cropped. Lucy was naturally pleased that Cousin Tom was so good to her, and it was very amusing to see him tickling a fat toad with a piece of string, when the toad was safe down the area with the iron grating over him. Still, Lucy wished Maggie to enjoy the spectacle also, especially as she would doubtless find a name for the toad, and say what had been his past history, for Lucy had a delighted semi-belief in Maggie's stories about the live things they came upon by accident. How Mrs. Earwig had a wash at home, and one of her children had fallen into the hot copper, for which reason she was running so fast to fetch the doctor. Tom had a profound contempt for this nonsense of Maggie's, smashing the earwig at once as a superfluous yet easy means of proving the entire unreality of such a story. But Lucy, for the life of her, could not help fancying there was something in it, and at all events thought it was very pretty make-believe. So now the desire to know the history of a very portly toad, added to her habitual affectionateness, made her run back to Maggie and say, "'Oh, there is such a big funny toad, Maggie. Do come and see.' Maggie said nothing, but turned away from her with a deeper frown. As long as Tom seemed to prefer Lucy to her, Lucy made part of his unkindness. Tickling a fat toad is an amusement that it is possible to exhaust, and Tom by and by began to look around for some other mode of passing the time. But in so prim a garden, where they were not to go off the paved walks, there was not a great choice of sport. The only great pleasure such a restriction suggested was the pleasure of breaking it, and Tom began to meditate a visit to the pond, about a field's length from the garden. "'I say, Lucy,' he began, as he coiled up his string again, "'what do you think I mean to do?' "'What, Tom?' said Lucy, with curiosity. "'I mean to go to the pond and look at the pike. "'You may go with me if you like,' said the young sultan. "'Oh, Tom, dare you?' said Lucy. "'Aunt said we mustn't go out of the garden.' "'Nobody'll see us,' said Tom. "'Besides, I don't care if they do. "'I'll run off home.' "'But I couldn't run,' said Lucy, who had never before been exposed to such severe temptation. "'Oh, never mind. They won't be cross with you,' said Tom. "'You say I took you.' Tom walked along, and Lucy trotted by his side, timidly enjoying the rare treat of doing something naughty, excited, too, by the mention of that celebrity, the pike, about which she was quite uncertain whether it was a fish or a fowl. Maggie saw them leaving the garden, and could not resist the impulse to follow. That Tom and Lucy should do or see anything of which she was ignorant would have been an intolerable idea to Maggie, so she kept a few yards behind them unobserved by Tom, who was presently absorbed in watching for the pike, a highly interesting monster. The pike, like other celebrities, did not show when he was watched for, but Tom caught sight of something which attracted him to another spot on the brink of the pond. "'Here, Lucy,' he said in a loud whisper, "'come here,' "'Take care. Keep on the grass. Don't step where the cows have been,' he added, pointing to a peninsula of dry grass with trodden mud on each side of it. Lucy came carefully as she was bidden, and bent down to look at what seemed a golden arrowhead darting through the water. It was a water-snake, Tom told her, and Lucy at last could see the serpentine weave of its body. Maggie had drawn nearer and nearer. She must see it, too.' though it was bitter to her like everything else, since Tom did not care about her seeing it. At last she was close by Lucy, and Tom, who had been aware of her approach, but would not notice it till he was obliged, turned round and said, 
Now get away, Maggie. There's no room for you on the grass here. Nobody asked you to come. There were passions at war in Maggie at that moment to have made the tragedy, but the utmost she could do, with a fierce thrust of her small brown arm, was to push poor little pink-and-white Lucy into the cow-trodden mud. Then Tom could not restrain himself, and gave Maggie two smart slaps on the arm as he ran to pick up Lucy, who lay crying helplessly. Maggie retreated to the roots of the tree a few yards off, and looked on impenitently. Usually her repentance came quickly after one rash deed, but now Tom and Lucy had made her so miserable that she was glad to spoil their happiness, glad to make everybody uncomfortable. Why should she be sorry? Tom was slow to forgive her, however sorry she might have been. "'I shall tell mother, you know, Miss Mag,' said Tom loudly and emphatically as soon as Lucy was up and ready to walk away, crying piteously. It was not Tom's practice to tell— but here justice clearly demanded that Maggie should be visited with the utmost punishment. "'Sally,' said Tom, when they reached the kitchen door, and Sally looked at them in speechless amaze, with a piece of bread and butter in her mouth, and a toasting fork in her hand. "'Sally, tell mother it was Maggie pushed Lucy into the mud.' "'But, Lord, her massy, how did you get near such mud as that?' said Sally, making a wry face. Tom's imagination had not been rapid enough to include this question among the foreseen consequences, but it was no sooner put than he foresaw that Maggie would not be considered the only culprit in the case. He walked quietly away from the kitchen door, leaving Sally to the pleasure of guessing. Sally lost no time in presenting Lucy at the parlour door. "'Goodness gracious!' Aunt Pullet exclaimed. "'Keep her at the door, Sally. Don't bring her off the oilcloth, whatever you do.' "'Why, she's tumbled into some nasty mud,' said Mrs. Tulliver, "'going up to Lucy to examine into the amount of damage. "'If you please em, it was Miss Maggie as pushed her in,' said Sally. "'Master Tom's been and said so, and they must have been to the pond, "'for it's only there that they could have got into such dirt.' "'Mrs. Tulliver was mute, feeling herself a truly wretched mother, "'while Mrs. Pullet began to give elaborate directions to Sally "'how to guard the premises from serious injury in the course of removing the dirt.' Mrs. Tulliver went out to speak to her naughty children, supposing them to be close at hand, but it was not until after some search that she found Tom leaning with rather a hardened, careless air against the white paling of the poultry-yard and lowering his piece of string as a means of exasperating the turkey-cock. "'Tom, you naughty boy! Where's your sister?' said Mrs. Tulliver in a distressed voice. "'I don't know,' said Tom. His eagerness for justice on Maggie had diminished, since he had seen that it could hardly be brought about without the injustice of some blame on his own conduct. "'Why, where did you leave her?' said his mother, looking round. "'Sitting under the tree against the pond,' said Tom, apparently indifferent to everything but the string and the turkey-cock. "'Then go and fetch her in this minute, you naughty boy.' You may conceive the terrified search for Maggie, and the difficulty of convincing her mother that she was not in the pond— Tea deferred, and the poultry alarmed by the unusual running to and fro, till Mr. Pullet, confused and overwhelmed, reached down a key to unlock the goose-pen as a likely place for Maggie to lie concealed in. Tom, after a while, started the idea that Maggie was gone home, without thinking it necessary to state that it was what he should have done himself under the circumstances, and the suggestion was seized as a comfort by his mother. "'Sister, for goodness' sake, let him put the horse in the carriage and take me home.' "'Lucy can't walk in her dirty clothes. 
she said, looking at that innocent victim, who was wrapped up in a shawl and sitting with naked feet on the sofa. Aunt Pullet was quite willing to take the shortest means of restoring her premises to order and quiet, and it was not long before Mrs. Tulliver was in the chaise, looking anxiously at the most distant point before her. Maggie's intentions, as usual, were on a larger scale than Tom had imagined. The resolution that gathered in her mind, after Tom and Lucy had walked away, was not so simple as that of going home. No, she would run away and go to the gypsies, and Tom should never see her any more. That was by no means a new idea to Maggie. She had been so often told she was like a gypsy and half wild, that when she was miserable it seemed to her the only way of escaping blame, and being entirely in harmony with circumstances, would be to live in a little brown tent on the commons. The gypsies, she considered, would gladly receive her, and pay her much respect on account of her superior knowledge. She had once mentioned her views on this point to Tom, and suggested that he should stain his face brown, and they should run away together. But Tom rejected the scheme with contempt, observing that gypsies were thieves, and hardly got anything to eat, and had nothing to drive but a donkey. Today, however, Maggie thought her misery had reached a pitch at which gypsydom was her only refuge, and she rose from her seat on the roots of the tree with the sense that this was a great crisis in her life. She would run straight away till she came to Dunlow Common, where there would certainly be gypsies, and cruel Tom and the rest of her relations who found fault with her should never see her any more. She thought of her father as she ran along, but she reconciled herself to the idea of parting with him by determining that she would secretly send him a letter by a small gypsy, who would run away without telling where she was, and just let him know that she was well and happy and always loved him very much. Maggie soon got out of breath with running. She presently passed through the gate into the lane, not knowing where it would lead her. But she was soon aware, not without trembling, that there were two men coming along the lane in front of her. The formidable strangers were two shabby-looking men with flushed faces, one of them carrying a bundle on a stick over his shoulder. The man with the bundle stopped, and in a half-whining, half-coaxing tone, asked her if she had a copper to give a poor man. Maggie had a sixpence in her pocket, her Uncle Glegg's present, which she immediately drew out and gave this poor man with a polite smile, hoping he would feel very kindly toward her as a generous person. "'That's the only money I've got,' she said apologetically. "'Thank you, little miss,' said the man, in a less respectful and grateful tone than Maggie anticipated, and she even observed that he smiled and winked at his companion. She walked on hurriedly, but was aware that the two men were standing still, probably to look after her, and she presently heard them laughing loudly. It was clear that she was not likely to make a favourable impression on passengers, and she thought she would turn into the fields again, but not on the same side of the lane as before, lest they should be Uncle Pullet's fields. She turned through the first gate that was not locked, and felt a delightful sense of privacy in creeping along the hedgerows. Sometimes she had to climb over high gates, but that was a small evil. She was getting out of reach very fast, and she should probably come soon within sight of Dunlow Common, or at least of some other common. She hoped so, for she was getting rather tired and hungry, and until she reached the gypsies there was no definite prospect of bread and butter. At last, however, the green fields came to an end, and Maggie found herself looking through the bars of a gate into a lane with a wide margin of grass on each side of it, where she saw a donkey with a log tied to its foot, feeding on the grassy margin. She crept through the bars of the gate, and walked on with new spirit, 
though not without haunting images of apollyon and a highwayman with a pistol and a blinking dwarf in yellow with a mouth from ear to ear and other miscellaneous dangers she hardly dared look on one side of her lest she should see the diabolical blacksmith of her picture-book in his leathern apron grinning at her with arms akimbo it was not without a leaping of the heart that she caught sight of a small pair of bare legs sticking up feet uppermost by the side of a hillock they seemed something hideously preternatural a diabolical kind of fungus for she was too much agitated at the first glance to see the ragged clothes and the dark shaggy head attached to them it was a boy asleep and maggie trotted along faster and more lightly lest she should wake him it did not occur to her that he was one of her friends the gypsies who in all probability would have very genial manners but the fact was so for at the next bend in the lane maggie actually saw the little semicircular black tent with the blue smoke rising before it which was to be her refuge she even saw a tall female figure by the column of smoke doubtless the gypsy mother who provided the tea and other groceries it was astonishing to herself that she did not feel more delighted she went on however and it was plain she had attracted attention for the tall woman who proved to be a young woman with a baby on her arm walked slowly to meet her maggie looked up in the new face rather tremblingly as it approached and was reassured by the thought that her aunt pullet and the rest were right when they called her a gypsy for this face with the bright dark eyes and the long hair was really something like what she used to see in the glass before she cut her hair off my little lady where are you going to the gypsy said in a tone of coaxing deference it was delightful and just what maggie expected the gypsies saw at once that she was a little lady and were prepared to treat her accordingly not any farther said maggie feeling as if she were saying what she had rehearsed in a dream i'm come to stay with you please that's pretty come then why what a nice little lady you are to be sure said the gypsy taking her by the hand maggie thought her very agreeable but wished she had not been so dirty there was quite a group round the fire when they reached it an old gypsy woman was seated on the ground nursing her knees and occasionally poking a skewer into the round kettle that sent forth an odorous steam two small shock-headed children were lying prone and resting on their elbows something like small sphinxes and a placid donkey was bending his head over a tall girl who lying on her back was scratching his nose and indulging him with a bit of excellent stolen hay the slanting sunlight fell kindly upon them and the scene was really very pretty and comfortable maggie thought only she hoped they would soon set out the teacups everything would be quite charming when she had taught the gypsies to use a washing basin and to feel an interest in books it was a little confusing though that the young woman began to speak to the old one in a language which maggie did not understand while the tall girl who was feeding the donkey sat up and stared at her without offering any salutation at last the old woman said what my pretty lady are you come to stay with us sit ye down and tell us where you come from it was just like a story maggie liked to be called a pretty lady and treated in this way she sat down and said i'm come from home because i'm unhappy and i mean to be a gypsy i'll live with you if you like and i can teach you a great many things such a clever little lady said the woman with the baby sitting down by maggie and allowing baby to crawl and such a pretty bonnet and frock she added taking off maggie's bonnet and looking at it while she made an observation to the old woman in the unknown language the tall girl snatched the bonnet and put it on her own head hind foremost with a grin 
but Maggie was determined not to show any weakness on this subject. "'I don't want to wear a bonnet,' she said. "'I'd rather wear a red handkerchief like yours,' looking at her friend by her side. "'Oh, what a nice little lady, and rich, I'm sure,' said the old woman. "'Didn't you live in a beautiful house at home?' "'Yes, my home is pretty, and I'm very fond of the river where we go fishing, "'but I'm often very unhappy. "'I should have liked to bring my books with me, but I came away in a hurry, you know. "'But I can tell you almost everything there is in my books. "'I've read them so many times.' and that will amuse you and i can tell you something about geography too that's about the world we live in did you ever hear about columbus maggie's eyes had begun to sparkle and her cheeks to flush she was really beginning to instruct the gypsies and gaining great influence over them the gypsies themselves were not without amazement at this talk though their attention was divided by the contents of maggie's pocket which the friend at her right hand had by this time emptied without attracting her notice is that where you live my little lady said the old woman at the mention of columbus oh no said maggie with some pity columbus was a very wonderful man who found out half the world and they put chains on him and treated him badly you know but perhaps it's rather too long to tell before tea i want my tea so the last words burst from maggie in spite of herself with a sudden drop from patronizing instruction to simple peevishness "'Why, she's hungry, poor little lady,' said the younger woman. "'Give her some of the cold victual. "'You've been walking a good way, I'll be bound, my dear. "'Where's your home?' "'It's Dolcott Mill, a good way off,' said Maggie. "'My father is Mr. Tulliver, and we mustn't let him know where I am, "'else he'll fetch me home again. "'Where does the Queen of the Gypsies live?' "'What? You want to go to her, my little lady?' said the younger woman. "'The tall girl, meanwhile, was constantly staring at Maggie and grinning.' Her manners certainly were not agreeable. No, said Maggie, I'm only thinking that if she isn't a very good queen, you might choose another. If I was queen, I'd be a very good queen and kind to everybody. Here's a bit of nice victual, then, said the old woman, handing to Maggie a lump of dry bread, which she had taken from a bag of scraps, and a piece of cold bacon. Thank you, said Maggie, looking at the food without taking it. "'But will you give me some bread and butter and tea instead? "'I don't like bacon.' "'We got no tea nor butter,' said the old woman, "'with something like a scowl, "'as if she were getting tired of coaxing. "'Oh, a little bread and treacle would do,' said Maggie. "'We ain't got no treacle,' said the old woman crossly, "'whereupon there followed a sharp dialogue "'between the two women in their unknown tongue, "'and one of the small sphinxes snatched at the bread and bacon "'and began to eat it. "'At this moment the tall girl, who had gone a few yards off, "'came back,' and said something which produced a strong effect. The old woman, seeming to forget Maggie's hunger, poked the skewer into the pot with new vigour, and the younger crept under the tent, and reached out some platters and spoons. Maggie trembled a little, and was afraid the tears would come into her eyes. Meanwhile the tall girl gave a shrill cry, and presently came running up the boy, whom Maggie had passed as he was sleeping, a rough urchin about the age of Tom. He stared at Maggie, and there ensued much incomprehensible chattering she felt very lonely and was quite sure she should begin to cry before long the gypsies didn't seem to mind her at all and she felt quite weak among them but the springing tears were checked by a new terror when two men came up whose approach had been the cause of the sudden excitement the elder of the two carried a bag which he flung down addressing the women in a loud and scolding tone which they answered by a shower of treble sauciness while a huge cur ran barking up to Maggie and threw her into a tremor that 
only found a new cause in the curses with which the younger man called the dog off and gave him a rap with the great stick he held in his hand maggie felt that it would be impossible she should ever be queen of these people or ever communicate to them amusing and useful knowledge both of the men now seemed to be inquiring about maggie for they looked at her at last the younger woman said in her previous deferential coaxing tone this nice little lady's come to live with us aren't you glad ay very glad said the younger man who was looking at maggie's silver thimble and other small matters that had been taken from her pocket he returned them all except the thimble to the younger woman with some observation and she immediately restored them to maggie's pocket while the men seated themselves and began to attack the contents of the kettle a stew of meat and potatoes which had been taken off the fire and turned out into a yellow platter maggie began to think that tom must be right about the gypsies they certainly must be thieves unless the man meant to return her thimble by and by she would willingly have given it to him for she was not at all attached to her thimble but the feeling that she was among thieves prevented her from feeling any revival of deference and attention towards her all thieves except robin hood were wicked people the women saw she was frightened we've got nothing nice for a lady to eat said the old woman in her coaxing tone and she's so hungry sweet little lady here my dear try if you can eat a bit of this said the younger woman handing some of the stew on a brown dish with an iron spoon to maggie who remembering that the old woman had seemed angry with her for not liking the bread and bacon dared not refuse the stew though fear had chased away her appetite if her father would but come by in the jig and pick her up or even if jack the giant killer or mr greatheart or st george who slew the dragon would happen to pass that way but maggie thought with a sinking heart that those heroes were never seen in the neighbourhood of st ogg's nothing very wonderful ever came there maggie's ideas about gypsies had undergone a rapid modification in the last five minutes from having considered them very respectable companions amenable to instruction she had begun to think that they meant perhaps to kill her as soon as it was dark and cut up her body for gradual cooking the suspicion crossed her that the fierce-eyed old man was perhaps the devil who might drop that disguise at any moment and turn into the grinning blacksmith or else a fiery-eyed monster with dragon's wings it was no use trying to eat the stew and yet the thing she most dreaded was to offend the gypsies by betraying her extremely unfavourable opinion of them what you don't like the smell of it my dear said the young woman observing that maggie did not even take a spoonful of the stew try a bit come no thank you said maggie summoning all her force for a desperate effort and trying to smile in a friendly way i haven't time i think it seems getting darker i think i must go home now and come again another day and then i can bring you a basket with some jam tarts and things maggie rose from her seat devoutly hoping her hint about the tarts would tempt apollyon to let her go but her hopes sank when the old gypsy woman said stop a bit little lady we'll take you home all safe when we've done supper you shall ride home like a lady maggie sat down again with little faith in this promise though she presently saw the tall girl putting a bridle on the donkey and throwing a couple of bags on his back now then little missus said the younger man rising and leading the donkey forward tell us where you live dolcott mill is my home said maggie eagerly my father is mr tulliver he lives there what a big mill a little this side of st ogg's yes said maggie is it far off i think i should like to walk there if you please no no it'll be getting dark we must make haste 
and the donkey'll carry you as nice as can be you'll see he lifted maggie as he spoke and set her on the donkey she felt relieved that it was not the old man who seemed to be going with her but she had only a trembling hope that she was really going home here's your pretty bonnet said the younger woman putting that recently despised but now welcome article of costume on maggie's head and you'll say we've been very good to you won't you and what a nice little lady we said you was oh yes thank you said maggie i'm very much obliged to you but i wish you'd go with me too she thought anything was better than going with one of the dreadful men alone ah you're fondest of me aren't you said the woman but i can't go you'll go too fast for me it now appeared that the man was also to be seated on his donkey holding maggie before him and she was as incapable of demonstrating against this arrangement as the donkey himself though no nightmare had ever seemed to her more horrible when the woman had patted her on the back and said good-bye the donkey at a strong hint from the man's stick set off at a rapid walk along the lane toward the point maggie had come from an hour ago while the tall girl and the rough urchin also furnished with sticks obligingly escorted them for the first hundred yards with much screaming and thwacking not leonore in that preternatural midnight excursion with her phantom lover was more terrified than poor maggie in this entirely natural ride on a short-paced donkey with a gypsy behind her who considered he was earning half a crown the red light of the setting sun seemed to have a portentous meaning with which the alarming bray of the second donkey with the log on its foot must surely have some connection two low thatched cottages the only houses they passed in this lane seemed to add to its dreariness they had no windows to speak of and the doors were closed it was probable that they were inhabited by witches and it was a relief to find that the donkey did not stop there at last oh sight of joy this lane the longest in the world was coming to an end was opening onto a broad high road where there was actually a coach passing there was a finger post at the corner she had surely seen that finger post before to st ogg's two miles the gypsy really meant to take her home then he was probably a good man after all and might have been rather hurt at the thought that she didn't like coming with him alone this idea became stronger as she felt more and more certain that she knew the road quite well and she was considering how she might open a conversation with the injured gypsy and not only gratify his feelings but efface the impression of her cowardice when as they reached a crossroad maggie caught sight of someone on a white-faced horse oh stop stop she cried out there's my father oh father father the sudden joy was almost painful and before her father reached her she was sobbing great was mr tulliver's wonder for he had made a round from bassett and had not yet been home why what's the meaning of this he said checking his horse while maggie slipped from the donkey and ran to his stirrup the little miss lost herself i reckon said the gypsy she'd come to our tent at the far end of dunlow lane and i was bringing her where she said her home was it's a good way to come after being on the tramp all day oh yes father he's been very good to bring me home said maggie a very kind good man here then my man said mr tulliver taking out five shillings it's the best day's work you ever did i couldn't afford to lose the little wench here lift her up before me why maggie how's this how's this he said as they rode along while she laid her head against her father and sobbed how came you to be rambling about and lose yourself oh father said maggie i ran away because i was so unhappy tom was so angry with me i couldn't bear it pooh pooh said mr tulliver soothingly you mustn't think of running away from father 
"'What had father do without his little wench? "'Oh, no, I never will again, father, never!' "'Mr. Tulliver spoke his mind very strongly "'when he reached home that evening, "'and the effect was seen in the remarkable fact "'that Maggie never heard one reproach from her mother "'or one taunt from Tom "'about this foolish business of her running away to the gypsies. "'Maggie was rather awe-stricken by this unusual treatment.' and sometimes thought that her conduct had been too wicked to be alluded to. End of section 31